Out podcast. We've talked a lot about plummeting birth rates in the West, about high rates of unhappiness among modern women, about the loneliness epidemic in our society, and about the crisis unfolding among men with large numbers of suicides and overdoses. My guest on the program today says there's a factor we should consider with each of these issues, and that is low marriage rates. And he thinks it's time to have a conversation about the state of our unions. Brad Wilcox is a professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Brad Wilcox is my guest today on Lean Out. Brad, welcome to Lean Out. It's good to be here with you, Tara. It's really nice to have you on today. I found this book really fascinating and resonated with me in a number of personal ways that we will get to. To start today, I mean, half of Americans are now unmarried. That is a truly unprecedented state of affairs for society. We should note Canada is similar. We're also experiencing a long-term decline in marriage rates. Just to set the stage for our conversation today, looking at the data in general terms, what impact is that trend having on individuals and on society? Yeah. So I I think sometimes people think about kind of love and marriage as simply individual, you know, or maybe even familial concerns, like it affects me, maybe my spouse, my kids. But we've seen the data is that basically strong families lead to, in a sense, good societies or good communities. And so everything from like mass incarceration to the kind of the character of what we call obviously the American dream down south of the border here to trends, national trends and happiness all kind of trace back very clearly to the health of marriage or in, in a sense, to put it in different terms, the state of our union depends to an important extent on the state of our unions, you know, both in the U.S. and this would be true for Canada as well. Your book does point to some exceptions to the rule for groups of Americans who are, as you put it, especially likely to get married, steer clear of divorce court and forge reasonably happy unions. Walk us through who these groups are. What I kind of imagine as I kind of began this project is that I would sort of find that religious Americans, Asian Americans, and college-educated Americans groups that I call the strivers, you know, in the book, folks who kind of have a strong focus on education and, you know, sort of like the long term, that these three groups would be the ones who were kind of like the masters of marriage. But as I kind of was crunching the numbers, I also found, really to my surprise, that conservatives also kind of are uniquely successful at getting married and being happily married. So what that means concretely is when I'm running regression models and I throw in religion, you know, and education and race and ethnicity into the models, and then I throw ideology into the statistical models, I'm still finding there's a net effect of being conservative on your odds of being married and your odds of being happily married in the United States. That surprised me. I thought that was kind of more of a, a religion thing that conservatives obviously not are not all religious, but are often more religious. I thought once you controlled for religion, that conservative story would disappear. It did not. So that's why they're the fourth group in the book. So again, and one more thing just to kind of mention about those four groups is that a majority of them are married in an 18 to 55 demographic, whereas they're kind of comparison groups are not. So a majority of conservatives are married, not a majority of liberal and moderates. A majority of religious you know, Americans are married, not a majority of secular Americans. A majority of college-educated Americans are married, not less educated. And then a majority of Asian American 
and whites are married and not the majority of black and Hispanics are married. So, you know, along these four axes, you see differences in who's getting married, who's staying married, who's happily married. And one of the things about these groups is that they're able to resist some of the cultural messaging that we have in our culture right now that is kind of anti-marriage. And the subtitle of your book is Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. In the book, you go through the messaging from elites. I'm assuming you mean economic elites here that, that devalues marriage from both the right and the left. Walk us through the messaging coming from the radical left and from the far right. So when I began this project, to be frank, I was thinking primarily about kind of more left-leaning, you know, journalists, professors, culture shapers, you know, who are often kind of delivering a, a negative message about marriage, who are kind of denying its value or sort of minimizing its value. And as I was finishing up the book project, I came across an article in Bloomberg that said that, quote, women who stay single and don't have kids are getting richer and kind of was arguing that there was a kind of a way in which marriage and family life was a path to, you know, less economic success for women. And then, you know, there's an article called The Case Against Marriage in the Atlantic that I, you know, deal with. There's an article in the New York Times that says divorce can be an act of radical self-love. So these different kinds of messages from the more mainstream left are kind of encouraging folks to steer clear of marriage or family life or kind of minimize the importance of marriage, primarily for women. I think kind of everyone's sort of aware of that, you know, that line of argument. But what's new is we're now seeing what I call the red pill right, online right figures like Pearl Davis and Andrew Tate, got big platforms online, and they're saying that marriage is basically a bad deal, especially for men, because of high divorce rates. And so ironically, both oftentimes like progressives on the left are kind of sort of telling women and now this online right crowd is telling men to steer clear of marriage, instead focus on money, career, freedom, and, you know, not settling down in a sense, probably using, but, but not really engaging the opposite sex in a relationship of one sort or another. So these two different forces are now both ending up being kind of anti-marriage voices in our culture today. I was looking at your tweets, I think it was last week, and you tweeted about a New York Times piece on that new memoir about polyamory, about open marriage. Right. I thought this was a really good example to kind of tease out because I actually went and read that memoir, and it's um, a profoundly depressing book. The coverage of it is framed around this buzz and sort of hip new lifestyle and liberation and kind of emotional evolution. But the actual story is her having a lot of very degrading sex and it creating a lot of heartache and anxiety and stress in her marriage. And this is a trend for these kinds of books by Gen X and millennial women who seem to be seeking liberation through, through sex and outside of committed relationships. I guess my question is, though, why in the end is it any of our business what their choices are? Like, should we not just take an approach of live and let live here? Yeah, well, we have a colleague who's writing a, you know, an article on this memoir and just the broader phenomenon. And she just makes the point that one of the characters, one of this woman's lovers from this, you know, this new memoir, I think his marriage basically dissolves because of all this polyamory stuff. And so he's left like living thousands of miles away from his son. You know, that's sort of the, where the rubber hits the road, right? So like, you actually know that, yes, sort of like human beings are social animals and we're kind of we're drawn in two different directions. One is towards, you know, promiscuity and multiple partners and one is towards pair bonding. And so different cultures over time have tend to stress one or the other. But you've got to, you've got to make a choice, basically. And if you want to maximize monogamy, 
which tends to reinforce social stability, which tends to connect men to their children, you know, then you've got to do that. If you want to open up, you know, the polyamorous or the polygamous, you know, or the polyandrous lifestyle, you've got to recognize that there are costs to that, you know, that are paid for people who might become jealous of their spouse's, you know, entanglements. And then oftentimes you're just going to bring more instability to kids' lives and, and tend to disconnect them, you know, from an ongoing and stable relationship with their father, you know, in many cases. So that's that's the, the clear downside, I think, to this. And people have no recognition, too, that a lot of this was sort of tried in the 70s. There were lots of, you know, obviously swinging marriages and at least the sort of historical, you know, takes that I've that I've read on the swinging 70s suggest that a lot of these marriages that opened up in the 70s, you know, ended up in a very bad place. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that part of what this phenomenon is about is the sort of cheerleading of it in the public. And it makes me think about Rob Henderson and his concept of luxury beliefs that, you know, economic elites espouse, you know, beliefs without having to deal with the consequences of them. I want to talk now about children and why kids are better off with two married parents. This is obviously an extremely touchy topic. As we recently saw with, with the book, The, the Two-Parent Privilege, this really blows up in the media. But I, it's very personal for me. I came from very progressive circles. I went through a divorce as a child. It was incredibly painful. And there was a fallout in a number of ways in my life, including financially, of having my dad be more absent. You know, as someone on the left, what bothers me so much about this is that those who champion this idea that all family structures are equal are often those who have not had to deal with the consequences of these ideas. So I'd like to just to open up that part of the conversation, just ask you a personal question. What was your own family experience growing up and how did it inform your work on this book? Yes, yeah, so I was raised in the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, my mom's a single mom. My dad died when I was three. But as I mentioned in the book, you know, a I think four out of five of my close friends growing up in Connecticut either had parents who had divorced before I met them or had parents who got divorced after I got to know my friends. So divorce is kind of endemic, you know, I think as it was for many, you know, kids in the 70s and 80s. And that certainly shaped my perspective on family life. And I went into college at the University of Virginia, kind of just had this sense that, you know, fatherhood was important and that marriage was an institution that connected you know, typically men to their children. And so that kind of led me then to pursue a, a career in sociology at Princeton and, and then at UDA again. So that's the quick personal story. But also my story tells us too that like kids who are raised, you know, probably like your stories would indicate as well, like there are plenty of us who are raised by single moms who do fine, right, and many outcomes. But I think we also kind of, you know, wish that we could have been raised in a home with both our parents. And there's a certain sense of loss and longing that follows from not having one parent, you know, in the home when you're growing up. And then there are obviously financial consequences as well. Why do you think that piece is so difficult to talk about publicly? Well, I think it's weird, you know, like we have college presidents and, you know, other cultural leaders who will kind of talk about the, the value of education and they can wax poetic about first generation students at their university and all this kind of stuff. And these are people that are often, you know, successfully married, you know, have got two, three, four children, and they can talk, you know, to the cows come home about the power and value of education. But if you were to kind of ask them a pointer question, but what about like, how much does your marriage matter for you and your wife and your children? They'd be completely tongue tied. You know, do you want to talk about that? You know, that to the students at your university or college? 
And I think the issue is that, number one, unfortunately, marriage has become coded as a conservative issue, really in some ways since the Moynihan Report, you know, in America in the late 1960s. And it intersects with race, it intersects with gender, sexuality, you know, over the years. And then I think there's just kind of this broader commitment to progress also on the left and kind of every new family, you know, practice is kind of seen as a, you know, a mark of progress. And so we can't sort of say anything negative about some new family arrangement that may kind of come on the scene because that would be, you know, conservative or reactionary rather than progressive. So these are some of the reasons why I think it's hard for us to talk about the value of marriage and family. And yet, obviously, from the kids' perspective, you know, I talk in, in the book about young adults, including Rob Henderson, who, you know, experience major instability in childhood and how that's really hard. And other young adults who, you know, were raised in stably married homes and are flourishing, probably as a consequence of that. And then at the, sort of just the numbers, we know, for instance, that, you know, young adults who come from intact homes are about twice as likely to graduate from college compared to their peers who haven't even controlling things like race and, you know, parental education and whatnot. So there's a clear empirical story in the book about how, on average, coming up with your own two parents in the household puts you at, at an advantage. Another one of the real dominant narratives in our culture that you address in this book is the flying solo myth. This is something that I think a lot of us Gen X women were raised with. Focus on yourself, focus on self-actualization and career and, and financial success, and the rest will fall into place. But we are seeing declining fertility rate all over the West. Canada is well below replacement now. Right. And as we know from the work of Cardis, that a lot of women in this country are not having kids when they would like to. So talk to me a little bit about how you kind of unpacked that myth and what you think we need to do going forward with it. You know, what's striking is there's a new survey from the Survey Center in American Life. And it says that a majority of Americans think that men who get married and have kids are happier than other men. Okay, so there's still an acknowledgement. Well, it's, only, it's a very slim majority of people who think that in, in the U.S. today, but it still is a slim majority think that basically marriage benefits men in terms of happiness. But then they say women who get married and have kids are happier than other women. OK, only 32 percent of women in the United States believe that to be the case. And it's an even smaller share for younger women. So and then even only minority of men think that women benefit from, you know, from marriage when it comes to happiness. And yet we know from my own research with my colleague, Dr. Wendy Wang, that the happiest women in America, 18 to 55, are married mothers. <laughs> you know, they're happier than married childless women, and they're a lot happier than their unmarried female peers. So there's just a huge gap between women's actual happiness and their perceptions about how marriage and motherhood are tied to happiness. And I think that's in part because you know, there's just a lot of commentary in the media, in the academy. And, you know, now online on social media that sort of is pretty critical about marriage and men and, and motherhood and the sacrifices that, you know, that all that. Time. Now, it's also the case when you look at the evidence that women who are mothers, especially, are more stressed out, they're more tired than their female peers who aren't moms. So I'm not saying that, like, you know, motherhood's some kind of cakewalk. It's clearly not for most women. But you've got to think about this from a kind of like a comparative perspective. And women who are married mothers report less loneliness, a lot more meaning in their lives, and again, more happiness. I think that, you know, the benefits of having a spouse and children is, you know, as challenging as they can be, clearly outweigh the costs. 
you also write about men in the book, and we do know that we're experiencing a crisis with men now, reduced employment, reduced educational achievement, high rates of loneliness and suicide and drug overdoses. I want to talk about this bare branch phenomenon. And one of the most striking things in the book is when you talk about Durkheim and suicide and what we know about what causes people to hit those levels of despair. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I talked in the book about this bare branches phenomenon, which is this term that comes from China. They're talking about basically men in China who are neither married nor fathers. So it's a way of kind of getting us to realize that there are going to be more and more both men and women in the United States who are who are bare branches, who don't have any kin to kind of provide some sense of solidarity, support, emotional connection, and financial stability as well. And Emile Durkheim sort of had this idea, he's a great French sociologist from the 19th century, this idea that basically people are more likely to flourish when they have strong social relationships and when they have kind of norms that superintend and govern their lives. And I talk about a guy named Scott in that chapter, who is a 30-something guy who by most sort of expectations in the culture should be doing just great. He's got a good job. He makes more than six figures. He owns his own home. He's got a college degree, you know, he's kind of doing everything right from kind of an educational and a career-based perspective, but he's not married. He doesn't have children and he's kind of profoundly lonely and what we call in the discipline, a nomic. He doesn't have a good sense of meaning in his life. And so, you know, I really sort of had a sense in talking to him that he was, you know, much more likely to be lonely and anxious and depressed without a spouse. And then on the suicide front, basically Durkheim talks about how people who are deeply embedded in social institutions and social networks are much less likely to succumb to suicide. And those who don't have strong social ties, they don't have the ties that bind, if you will, are much more likely to fall prey to suicide. There's a study done in the United States with Augustine Caposo looking at the link between marital status for men, for instance, and the risk of suicide and finds that, you know, men who are never married are about 40% more likely to commit suicide and men who are divorced are about twice as likely to commit suicide. So there's, a, you know, just a clear connection between not being married for men and a high risk of suicide. And there's also a higher risk for women too. It's not as pronounced on the marriage front. What's interesting is that for women, motherhood is especially protective against you know, suicide. And there's a study by um, Rina Darhara looking at Sweden, actually, and just finding that Swedish women who have one child, and especially who have two or more kids, are much, much less likely, about sort of 70% less likely to commit suicide than Swedish women who don't have children. So putting this all together, what you see is that basically having a spouse, having children is protective against suicide, in part because there's more sense of solidarity, there's more meaning in your life, there are norms governing your life. Your life is full. I've got a lot of kids and I mean, we're always stressed out, you know, running from soccer practice to basketball to, you know, a school gathering of one sort or another. But like we're, our lives are, you know, very meaningful. We're never, we're never lonely. And like, you know, the thought of suicide just, you know, we're just in some ways just too busy to be kind of going down that, that road. And it sounds like there's a lot of factors here. I mean, one is the living an other-focused life is the yeah, idea, right, right, right. of self-sacrifice yeah. and caring about right. the well-being of others, which does 
generate happiness. But also, as you say, the routines, the fact that your life is grounded, you know where you're going to be at Christmas. There's a sort of routine to it. And then also that the meaning and purpose is not something that you have to invent every day, every week, which is something I hear from single people that I know a lot that, you know, what is my life about right now? What is it about next Tuesday? I think that's a really powerful thing as well. Now, one of your critics, Anna Louise Sussman, she's also been on this podcast talking about her work on declining fertility. So I think she's expressed some frustration that like, it's great to say, get married. It's great to point out all of these benefits. But what do you say to people in the culture who are immersed in worlds where this is not happening and online dating is a disaster and there is a lack of, you know, to her point, marriageable men? Like, what do you do when all the larger cultural forces are pulling in a different direction? I think that's a fair point. How how do you respond to it? Well, first of all, I, I want to acknowledge, I mean, I, you know, in fairness to her, she, the book wasn't out when she saw the title, but, you know, you've read the book, you know, I'm talking to women too, who are expressing frustration with dating realities and sequencing and sort of how they handle their lives. And unfortunately, you know, one of the things that I talk about is that we're estimating that one in three young adults today will never marry in the U.S. And I think it's going to be higher than that. Just there's so many forces culturally and economically. So yes, it's harder to get married today for both women and men and for somewhat different reasons oftentimes. And I see a lot of heartache. I think we should be a lot more honest about that. We have a lot of like cheerleading about this, you know, sort of celebrating. I mentioned that Bloomberg piece when that Bloomberg author, you know, a female journalist probably in her, in her 30s published it. She had a tweet out kind of like with that dancing woman, you know, icon on Twitter and like, this is all great. You know, women don't get married, don't have kids, just, you know, focus on your careers. You can kill it financially. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. There are a lot of women out there who don't have that experience. And in fact, on average, we know that it's just harder for women who are married, sorry, unmarried and don't have kids when it comes to a variety of things. So I think acknowledging that when you can't get married, you know, and you can't find a spouse, that's pretty painful for a lot of people is, is in some ways one of the takeaways from the book. And certainly, I think my wife and I have been trying to include in our own social circle, you know, friends who are single, recognizing that, you know, they don't have things going on the same way that we do. And we can just sort of throw them into our messy mix. So that's one thing that I would say to someone like Anna. But I also think we have to be very clear with young adults today that if you think you kind of can just focus on your education and your career, you know, for the duration of your 20s and not give a moment's thought to dating with an eye towards marriage, you may find, you know, getting married to be a lot harder than you expected it would be. And there are plenty of students that I deal with at the University of Virginia who kind of have that mentality or been told by their parents to kind of delay, delay, delay until 28 or 29 or 30, you know, getting serious about love and marriage. And so as a practical matter, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to encourage younger adults not to put aside thoughts of marriage, you know, when you're 20 or 21. And if you're at a college, university, a good workplace, church, synagogue, temple, mosque, whatever it might be, to just be a lot more deliberate about meeting people, dating people, being open to dating people you might not initially think are you know, worthy of your status or whatever, and just to kind of put yourself in the mix. I was talking, for instance, to a graduate student at UVA who's very marriage-minded, but much more focused on his career and his education right now. And I said, have you asked him on a date recently? He said, you know, no. And so I encouraged him to do that. And now I've been seeing around Charlottesville with a young woman. So I'm assuming that my 
query kind of led him to take action. So that's sort of the point. And so what I'm saying is I'm like, Anna, is that, look, there are plenty of people out there who, who could ask them on a date. And there are plenty of folks who have been kind of dating or living together and they haven't kind of gotten very thoughtful about marriage. And so my book is hopefully speaking to them to kind of encourage them to be more deliberate about seeking a spouse, recognizing that for many of us, marriage is a great thing. Of course, not for all. Just to close today, at the end of the book, you talk about kind of synthesizing all you've learned in your research and in your interviews about what makes for a strong marriage. I loved reading this. Walk us through the five pillars that you outline in the book and the role that courage plays in enacting them. So I talk about communion. So fostering kind of a we before me mentality in your marriage. And one example I give of that is sort of joint checking accounts. We're getting a lot of voices, including the financial guru, Susie Norman, kind of encouraging us to keep separate accounts. But what we know is that couples who have joint accounts are much more likely to be flourishing in their marriages. So that's an example of communion, fostering that we before me approach to marriage and rejecting the kind of me first mentality that the culture is often feeding us. And I would say that I'm the perfect husband. I'm certainly not. My wife could certainly attest to that. But my point is that there are plenty of times when I'm basically inclined to be selfish. And so, you know, a good marriage culture tries to push us to be more attentive to the needs of our spouse. The second C is children, recognizing if you have kids that your marriage matters in part, not just for your own well-being, but for the welfare of your kids. And so I think couples who have kind of their kids' well-being in mind, but don't go like overboard in terms of helicopter parenting, are more likely to have good marriages, you know, recognizing that they're kind of working on this common project, which is raising these kids together and being together for the sake of their children. That's the C for children. Third C is commitment, recognizing that probably one of the best predictors of a good relationship is having a spouse or a partner who really puts your welfare first. That's one expression. I also talked to you about the importance of cultivating fidelity in marriage and kind of keeping the D word out of your marriage. You know, Every couple has fights, disappointments, tough times. So don't kind of inject the D word, the divorce word into your thinking or your conversations because that just makes things worse. So just try to focus on being committed to your spouse, you know, and there will be obvious exceptions for things like domestic violence, but generally speaking, have that ethic of commitment. And then the fourth C is cash, recognizing that, you know, a steady stream of cash and more shared assets, you know, strengthen marriage. And probably the most provocative, I would say, at least for my position in the academy is where I argue in the book that there are still ways in which cash is gendered. And so it's not kind of who makes what in the marriage and the precise division of income. What we see is that for married moms, especially having a husband who's employed full time, I think is valued and linked to higher quality marriages, just gives them a measure of financial security and stability that they can rely on to either work full time or part time or be at home with their children. And we see also a lot more literature to indicating that women value full-time employment both on the front end of a marriage and in a sense the back end more than do men. So for instance, when a wife loses her job, no increase in divorce. When a husband loses his job, work at Harvard indicates that their divorce risk increases by 33%. So it just tells us that even today in 2024, Women still prefer men who are, you know, stand-up guys and reliable providers. And that's, in my world, that's sort of a controversial claim to make. It requires some courage in some ways to kind of just make the point that there are some gender differences that still 
play out in marriage. And that's one example. The fifth C is community. And the point here, obviously, is birds of a feather flock together. And so you can tell a lot about someone's marriage by their friends. If most of your friends are, you know, marriage friendly, supportive of your marriage, if they're married, have decent marriages themselves, if their parents, you know, invested in their kids, your odds of flourishing pretty high. If your friends have pretty negative relationships, they're not that committed, they're cycling through partners, you know, then your odds of succeeding are pretty low. And so the point is that we should try to gravitate towards communities that sustain our marriages. And one example of that in the book is just religious communities and people who are religious, be they Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever, are more likely to have kind of family-oriented lifestyles. I'm not saying they're perfect, we all know they're not. But I'm saying on average, couples who are embedded in religious communities are more likely to be flourishing in their marriages compared to couples who are living more secular lives. And just one example of this that surprised me is that a majority of couples who are secular don't have sex at least once a week. That was one of the one of the big surprises in this. You know, I, I didn't expect to find any kind of I mean, I expected to find I did find that religious couples report better sex, you know, because it's like a, it's not just a physical thing. It's like an emotional and spiritual thing. Right. But I was just surprised to find that only minority of secular couples have sex once a week and a clear majority of religious couples, about 60, I'm looking at the numbers here, about 65%, you know, report that they have sex once a week, married couples, 18 to 55. So, you know, when it comes to a lot of things in marriage, including a, a more frequent and satisfying sex life, we find that couples who are sharing a religious faith are more likely to be doing, to be flourishing on the family front, marriage front. I was also surprised by the finding when I read it. I think it's a really, really important time for this book and for this topic. Are you feeling, after all this research, optimistic or are you feeling pessimistic? That's a good question. I think we've all learned in the last seven years, right, Tara, that history moves in nonlinear ways, you know, any number of fronts, right? So I think there is certainly an openness among people that I've spoken to, kind of on the center left, including on the right, and religious and more middle of the road. I think the big question is, do folks on the left kind of come around on this? And you know, only time will tell because they tend to dominate many of our cultural institutions and they have you know, often been pretty skeptical about the value and power of marriage. And if they don't, then I think absent some major religious and cultural shift, then we'll continue to see in the society at large declines in marriage, but maybe kind of an upswing in kind of a countercultural current I certainly see ironically, not ironically, but in my own Catholic, my own parish attached to UVA, basically, we're seeing an upswing in young marriages. Our youth minister is doing more marriages now than he was doing like 10 years ago. And he's sort of seeing his crew is more intentional about dating than I towards marriage and was the case for UVA students and young adults in general in that in that crowd 10 years ago. So there, I think there could be kind of like certain pockets in the culture that are going to be, you know, more intentional about all this stuff going forward. Well, it will be so interesting to watch. And this is really a fantastic and fascinating book. And thank you so much for coming on today to discuss it. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.